independence. Independence is something that so many of us want. We want independence from our parents. We hope and aim for our children to be independent people. Recently, I had asked one of my children what they wanted to be when they grew up. And they said, I want to be a college student because I get to live alone. (laughs) We have a day every year that we celebrate independence. And if you're doing it correctly, you're watching the greatest film of all time, Independence Day. We love independence. And these forms of independence aren't inherently wrong, but so many of us bring these pursuits into our relationship with God. We might uh, say, thanks for creating me, but I got it from here. Or maybe we think, thank you for saving me. Now it's up to me to keep me saved. Or we might approach the king of kings as we ourselves thinking our kings or queens. This season that the church is in, the season of Lent, is meant to help us see these areas of our lives where we're living independently, trying to stand on our own two feet rather than living on dependence on God. This season is uh, meant for us to see, for us to turn and repent, and for most importantly, for us to remember our complete and utter dependence on God. This is good news. This dependence on God is good news for you and for me. Please pray with me. Lord God, we humbly come to you to ask for your guidance, for your exhortation, for your encouragement, and for above all else to see your Son, Jesus Christ, more clearly. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to discern the gentle words of the Holy Spirit, shedding greater light on the all-surpassing beauty of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his great name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In my meditation and study this week of our lectionary readings, I was truly troubled, and I wonder if you were troubled listening to them too. In our reading in Genesis and in our reading in the Gospel according to Mark, there is an invitation to us, an invitation that seems so absurd, so intense, and so demanding, I struggle to make sense of it. Firstly, looking at our text in Genesis, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, the only son in whom he loves to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. This means to kill his son. So Abraham takes a three-day journey up to the right mountain in Moria. He builds an altar, he lays down the wood, he raises the knife, the cleaver, the tool of violence, ready to strike his son when an angel of the Lord stops him. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not kill your son, for I see that you are faithful. Who who could be this faithful? Could I be this faithful? This call that Abraham received to offer up his son is even more costly than we may initially think. You see, these ancient cultures were not individualistic cultures like ours today. We decidedly measure our success and our worth by individual achievement. 
We love a rags-to-riches story, and many of us are automatically distrustful of anybody with immense inherited wealth. They didn't earn it themselves. In the ancient culture, they were not an individualistic society. They were a family-based society. And in this text, in this ancient culture, the firstborn son was of utmost importance. They were the ultimate hope of the family. All the inheritance would go to the firstborn because if the father or the parents gave equal amounts to everybody, all the power, all the land, all the wealth that they accumulated would be divided and would no longer be powerful. So they gave everything to the firstborn son and then that person was the benefactor of the whole family. That meant they took care of everyone in the family. So the firstborn was of utmost importance. So when God made this call to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, it was a call to sacrifice all of his hopes, all of his dreams, to sacrifice the continuation of his family. And what's even more absurd is that all of this, these original hopes and dreams and pursuits came from God. The call came from God to Abraham to leave his homeland to journey to this new land and a promise that he would be the father of nations. So this was initially a promise made by God to Abraham. And then he called Abraham to sacrifice it. And Abraham was faithful. Good thing we don't worship that God. The God of the Old Testament. Good thing God is not asking us to do anything remotely similar to this. Then comes the second troubling reading. The text in our lectionary found in the gospel according to Mark. In chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus calls to the crowd, and this means that he's talking to anybody who's listening or reading. That means us. Not just the disciples. He calls to the crowd, turns to the crowd, and he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Who could be this faithful? Could I be this faithful? Has anyone heard of the Stanford marshmallow experiment? Show of hands. Couple. My son, who was here for the first service, he heard it last time. The Stanford marshmallow experiment, it sounds like a cool jam band. It's not. It's a real experiment. This study was done in the 1970s to test delayed gratification. So the testers would bring in a bunch of kids, aged three to, si- uh, three to five, to sit in a room alone with a marshmallow. But here's the parameters. They told these kids, if you wait for me to come back, I will bring a second marshmallow. If you eat the marshmallow before I come back, you will not get a second marshmallow. So they explained these directions to the kids, and then they left for an undisclosed amount of time, There was nothing in the room. There was no clocks, no books, no TVs, nothing to entertain them, no pictures, just a child and a marshmallow. (laughs) And you could see the kid thinking, wondering, just staring at this marshmallow. And as you can imagine, many of them opted for the immediate gratification. What the testers also did is they had other kids, and they did not tell them about a promise of a new marshmallow. 
All they said was, do not eat this marshmallow. Those children were more able to wait. So the promise of more marshmallow created greater frustration and a greater likelihood of failure. And I don't know about you, but my life feels like a giant marshmallow experiment. Not a giant marshmallow, though that would be awesome, but the experiment that feels significant in my life. I try to deny myself. I try to take up my cross. I try so hard, to, but I continue to fail, and I continue to feel unfaithful. I fast, and then I tithe, and then I serve, and then I give, and then I share, and I do stuff, and I do lots of Christian-y things, and eventually I get frustrated, and I fail. And if you're like me, and I bet many of us are, many of these pursuits are for my sake. They're for me. Many of these denials are because I want a second marshmallow. But Jesus says, look at, uh, listen to this, verse 35. He says, whoever loses their life for my sake, that is for Jesus' sake, and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. Our reward is not a second marshmallow. Our reward is not a double portion of what we denied ourselves. Our reward is Jesus himself. In our gospel reading, just a few verses earlier, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now this is important because this is the first time in Mark's account that Jesus is confessed to be the Christ confessed to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that everyone had hoped for, the one who will inaugurate the kingdom of God, the one who will sit on the throne and rule God's kingdom with all justice and equality. So when Peter rebukes Jesus, I hope that we can have a little sympathy. Peter, and it wasn't just Peter, all the disciples were thinking this, Peter was anticipating an earthly kingdom. Peter and all the disciples were anticipating that Jesus would overthrow the Roman oppressors. So when Jesus said, I must suffer and I must be rejected and I must die, right after they said, you're the one, you're the one that's coming, you're the king, Jesus says, I will suffer and be rejected. So Peter says, Jesus, listen, we just said it, you're the Christ. The prophets prophesied that you would rule and inaugurate in God's kingdom. But Jesus, and this is where the good news comes in, Jesus says, I must suffer. I must be rejected and killed. Peter and all who were present anticipated the king on a throne, and Jesus said, I am a king who must go to the cross. The cross is the exact opposite of a throne. The cross is where you're stripped bare. On the cross, you are publicly displayed as a criminal. On the cross, you are made vulnerable. On the cross, you are mocked and ridiculed as the blood dripped from your pierced skin and your own weight slowly suffocated you. The cross was a place of shame. Why must he die? Why must he suffer? And how is this good news? Love is something that each and every person craves. 
to be truly loved and receive pure love, but it's actually impossible to give completely undefiled and pure love. Love always comes with conditions because we have limitations. We are people with needs. Love is in some ways transactional. Love is never fully vulnerably given. Jesus must go to the cross because this is the ultimate expression of love. He did not go to the cross with conditions. He did not go to the cross as part of a transaction. He did not go to the cross protecting himself. He went to the cross for love. This love is purely given. This is love for our benefit because the aim of Christ's love was our benefit, that we would be brought near. It did not benefit him, but in the cross, he was glorified because we were brought near. Why must he die? To give perfect love. No matter how hard it may be for a lot of us to admit, there is a separation between us and creator God. And we call this sin. And it has to be forgiven for us to be brought near. One of the most absurd responses to any apology is, no worries. In forgiveness, there is no such thing as no worries. There are, in fact, worries. If I hit your car and I apologize and you say, no worries, one of two things can happen. One, I pay to fix your car and you get your car back. I pay the price. Two, you say, no worries, and you either pay to fix the car or you go without a car. Either option, you are paying the price. In forgiveness, someone pays the price. H.R. McIntosh, who was a 19th century Scottish, Scottish theologian, he said this about forgiveness. Listen to this. Quote, The forgiver must set out on voyages of anguish. It is an experience of sacrificial pain and vicarious suffering. End quote. You see, the voyage of forgiveness, it actually puts the offended back into the experiences of the offense. To come to forgiveness, the offended has to rehash the extent of the offenses. Pure forgiveness, unlike pardon, it seeks to win the offender back into relationship. Let me say that again. Pure forgiveness, unlike pardon, seeks to win the offender back into relationship. In our sin, in my sin, we have committed offenses against God. And God, through the incarnation, that is Christ coming to earth, journeys to the offender, that is to us, reliving the painful separation. And the cross is the most explicit example of God's nature to us. The cross is the example of God's nature, a self-giving love for the benefit of the world that has turned its back to him. Why must he die? To offer pure forgiveness. The manner of Jesus' death is also quite important. If it was only meant that he would die, then he could have just died an old man in his bed. But in our text in Mark 8.31, Jesus says he must be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests, and by the scribes and be killed. This group were the rightful authorities that should have been standing up for justice 
rather than perpetuating injustice. Jesus, at the hands of an unjust system and unjust rulers, experienced oppression and injustice. And it was in his death, the very manner of his death, that Jesus defeated the powers and the principalities of this age. He defeated the powers of death and evil by being an innocent death. Why must he die? To destroy the earthly powers that rule over us. So when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, this is not about our faithfulness. What we're being invited into, what we're being called to is to live in the reality of his love, of his forgiveness, and of the freedom that he brings. This is what it means when he says, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. It is not our own uh, faithfulness that identifies us. It's the faithfulness of Christ. It's his love and his forgiveness and his freeing power. That is our identity, not our faithfulness. This is the good news. Thus, this high calling is but a response to the nature and character of Jesus Christ. We're not living in a marshmallow experiment. Jesus offers us something wholly other, freedom and dependence. Looking back at our story in Genesis, three times Abraham is called. Once by God, once by Isaac, and once by the angel of the Lord. And each time Abraham responds with eager readiness, here I am. So what made Abraham faithful? Abraham is mentioned a lot in the Bible as being a picture of faithfulness. So let me tell you about how faithful Abraham is. For fear of his life, Abraham pretended his wife was his sister so that he wouldn't be killed. So faithful. For distrust in God's promises, Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant in order to conceive a child. What wonderful faithfulness. So what made Abraham faithful in our text? Look at this in verses 7 and 8 in Genesis 22. Isaac says this, He says, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide. Another translation that I love said, God will see to it. God will see to it. One of Abraham's neighbors were the Canaanites, and we have history showing that the Canaanites did in fact practice child sacrifices. In order to appease their deity, their children were killed as sacrifices for the benefit of the people. So when the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and says, don't do this, God is saying, no more. No more. This is not the way I will be worshipped. The ways that you have done things is not the way that I will be worshipped. In our day, There are so many sacrifices that we make, so many pursuits to independence that we make, appeasing to the gods of comfort, the gods of wealth, the gods of indulgence. The list goes on and on and on. We bring this same mentality to Yahweh, the one true God, and God says, no more. So what must we do? How can we then live? God will see to it. How can we be faithful? God will see to it. But how can this trial be overcome? God will see to it. 
You see, our story that we're looking at in Genesis, it's not about Abraham's faithfulness, is it? It's about the faithfulness of God. It's about the fact that God will see to it. God will see to it. He brings the Lamb of God, the only perfect person, Jesus Christ, gave himself for our benefit, for our love, to bring us to God and to free us from the powers that rule our lives. A couple weeks ago, I was having breakfast with Heather, Matt, and Seth at Stacks. There's an important piece of information. At Stacks, we were having breakfast. And we almost finished our food, and Seth said, man, I wish I had gotten coffee. I looked around, and there's a pot of hot coffee, and our server was right there, and I said, you know, Seth, you can still get some coffee. And he said, nah, it's too late. Lent has started. Lent, the season for us to make space to see Jesus in our lives, to see where we are living independently and shift by repentance towards Jesus, a season to experience once again the faithfulness, the love, and the forgiveness, and the power of God. It is not too late. You have not missed it. Come and be reminded of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. God will see to it. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. We pray all this through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.